our passage this morning. This will be the last time I say this for quite some time. Second uh, Samuel chapter 24, I believe uh, it's page 277 in the Pew Bible. We've come to, to the end of First and Second Samuel, which is, is which is one whole thing. Uh, page two seventy seven. We're at the very last chapter. Uh, you know, it's common for me to refer to that group of God's people down through the ages who enjoy the promise, the blessing, as the covenant community. Uh, the covenant community. God makes a covenant, a bond, a pledge, a promise over a particular group that are descendants of Abram. Abram, uh, his name is later Abraham, uh, receives the blessing and the promise of a redemption and a forgiveness and a favor that would be for him uh, and his descendants. But uh, we are clearly able to see in the testimony of Scripture that covenant includes many, many more. In fact, so much so that when God says, uh, this covenant is for you, Abram, I want you to look with me up at the stars and behold, the number, it's too great to count. So, and, th- and thus is your descendants, too numerous to count. This is how many uh, of, the, of the, the descendants that will receive this same blessing. In fact, the blessing wouldn't be just for the people of Israel, of God, but also for the nations, that they would be a blessing, that God would ex- extend that covenant community and engraft and include and enfold and adopt into his covenant community, his family uh, many people from the nations. The covenant community uh, is and that we refer to ourselves as part of that. Uh, the new covenant uh, community. Uh, we seek to gather and enfold even more people uh, as well into the church because we, uh, we know of his blessing, his love. The covenant community, this covenant community, you, we as a people face all types. It's been true all the way down through the ages. Face all types of of trials and tests and threats. Uh, God's used through the years uh, messengers, angels, leaders, providence to guide his people. God has used his law to protect the covenant community. Uh, God has even used uh, his and our enemies and their enemies, the people of Israel, uh, to, to provide even, even trials and, and calamity uh, to discipline and to pursue and to harness his people, to draw them as they would wander at times to, to gain their attention and to draw them back into deeper devotion and fellowship with him. Sometimes we, we hear uh, people refer to my Lord in the text of, of Scripture, particularly the Old Testament. Sometimes that Lord is simply meaning the, the master of an estate, and, and that's the, that is the superior and the inferior. Inferior would refer to that master as Lord. But that's not to be mistaken with Yahweh, which is the divine covenantal name of our God, who is the sovereign over the sovereign Lord over all the nations. We call him the sovereign Lord, the sovereign, uh, because he has that control and authority and presence that no one and nothing else has or possessed, possesses. As our heavenly father. But of course, even as a heavenly father, to not only know him as Lord, but as father, we still resist his lordship. His lordship over us. We, we even resist uh, his, his law and his love. And, and when we began the journey uh, way, way back, a few years ago, in fact, now, when we began with God's people and, and looked at the covenant community uh, under the, you know, the, the writer of 
Samuel and under the rule of Judges Saul and then King David. What do we find at the end of the era of the Judges? The very last verse that is in Judges 21-25 says, In those days in Israel there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, I don't care what type of government you like. It, it's always bad when it's like this, right? Uh, this, is not, uh, this was not a good scenario whatsoever. The real reason, though, that the people wanted a king like all the other nations, God, please, they would cry out to the priest and the prophet, to Samuel, Samuel, give us a king like the king of all the other nations. Why? Because they didn't want God to be their king. Finally, ultimately, that's what would be revealed. Of course, they did get a king who was like the king of the other nations, uh, who, was, who was tall and handsome and strong and a warrior. And Saul was unfortunately not a man whose heart was inclined ultimately toward God. God gives them David. We know of, of, from the earliest ages, David is a, a, a young man, a shepherd and a musician and a skilled warrior. who was mighty for Saul's army and for the people of God. We see, we were introduced to David early on at that very, very early age when he's a nobody. And, uh, and he is filled uh, even then with great uh, faith and with great skill because he goes and remember his, his, uh, his debut is, is this battle with uh, the Philistines uh, representative and their giant Goliath. He takes him out and we see David's boldness. God gives him the victory, even though the circumstances would lend you to think David is a, sure, is a for sure loss. God even places a covenant promise on David after he establishes him as king of Judah and then over all of Israel. In 2 Samuel 7, we highlighted this uh, last week, that it would be a kingdom and a promise, a covenant for all uh, for all of David's lineage, that there would be this great uh, kingdom, Second Samuel seven, um, this king would, and there would be a king and a kingdom that would extend forever. And it says, because of your promise, and according uh, to your own heart, God, you have brought all of this greatness. David confesses to your servant to know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord Yahweh, Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. David did not just hear. David did not just say, and he said it a lot. And so we have the Psalms. David said it, and David saw it, but David saw and heard it would be it would be it would be miraculous how much stability and victory that God would grant to his people through the kingship of of David. And not not only that, not only victory, but true celebration and worship. David was a man who led people in to the worship of God and singing and celebration. David's family will build a house of, of worship Eventually, there will even be a temple. Solomon, it was appointed that Solomon would be the heir of David's throne in that same line. And Solomon would be the one who would establish a place of worship, a fixed place. Soon we'll see on the horizon. We'll see that David at various times and turns, unfortunately, uh, is disappointing. He, he disappoints his family. He disappoints the nation. He disappoints the Lord Yahweh. We, we're disappointed uh, in David as well. And it's not only because of his foolish frailty as a man, but sometimes because of his outright sin and selfishness. It brings suffering to David. 
It brings suffering to David's family and his, his country, sadly. And like any major leader, it can be very costly for the people. We know that there are times when David, uh, in his humility, charges forth faithfully with boldness. And God grants victory, not just for David, but for the people. As a representative, he is victorious. But also, in his foolishness and his, and his pride... He also takes with him a great number into suffering. That's true of any major leader. It can be at least. We see we're now though at the close. This, I'm sad we're at the close of this, uh, of this study of, of David and his life. Uh, we're in the last chapter here. This study began with the most famous figure uh, known to scripture aside from Jesus. And that is King David. And then next week, we're going to, in case you were wondering, we're going to pick up with the gospel of Matthew. And, uh, and we're, going to do that, uh, we're going to do that for a couple of weeks, building up to Christmas and the opening chapters of Matthew. And then going into the, to the, uh, the new year, we, we're going to do what we do every year, uh, which is we, we then pick back up with a gospel account. And that will be the gospel of Matthew, which will carry us through uh, into uh, the spring. But here in chapter 24... Uh, it's, it's actually going to set us right up for what we see in Matthew 1. Because Matthew 1, next week, we're going to read about the genealogy of Jesus. And in Matthew 1, verse 1, it says, Jesus, the son of David. The son, the promised son of David. This chapter that we're going to read, you, you might find it to be a, a rather puzzling uh, chapter as Many have found that to be, you might even find it somewhat anticlimactic, considering this is the close of the, the narrator's account of all that happened, beginning way, way back with Samuel, now close with David. I'll explain why it's, it's actually fitting that it is so anticlimactic here in a moment, but let me invite you in deference to God's word to stand as we read this portion. Hear this, this is the word of God. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times, as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord, the king, still see it. But why? Why does my Lord, the king, delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan. And then it goes and in, in highlights where the regions they went. And what did they find? Skip down to verse 9. Comes back after nine months in the sum of the number, verse 9, of the people they bring it to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah, the other uh, two southern tribe, the other tribe is 500,000. Verse 10, but David's heart struck him. That's conviction. Uh, after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I've sinned. I've sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant. For I've done, a very, I've done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, this, thus says the Lord, these three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. 
Verse 13, so Gad came to David and told him and said to him, shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you, that's number one. Number two, or will you flee for three months before the foes while they pursue you? Or three, there shall be three days of pestilence in your land. Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who has sent me. Then David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hands of men. So, verse 15, the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, that's as far north as it is south, in other words, 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. It is enough now. Your hand, stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor, threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, look, I've sinned and I've done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar unto the Lord at the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. Verse 19, so David went up to Gad's at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arunah looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arunah went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arunah said, Why has the Lord... Uh, the king come to his servants. And David said to buy the, the threshing floor from you and to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, let the Lord, the, the king, take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. This is God's word. Thanks be to him. You may be seated. Let me ask God's help. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us general revelation in the sun and the stars and the beauty and the glories of your creation. Thank you, God, for special revelation, for your word, uh, for your son made flesh. And I pray right now for illumination, that clarity and light that comes from the power of your spirit working. For your sake, Jesus, we pray. Amen. The, the way that I see this chapter breaking down is really in kind of four parts or movements. I've listed them there uh, in the order of service. And, and I'm just going to quickly work through those. Uh, the first is a plan beginning in those first nine verses. Then a prayer in verse 10, a punishment, verse 15. And, and then and the last one is a pardon, verses 18 to 25. Uh, the plan, uh, for some reason, uh, we don't exactly know, and I don't mean that in a critical way. Uh, I'm just saying we don't understand, not that we have to or must, 
But we don't understand why it is that, again, the term is used, God is angry. Verse 1, with his people Israel. Won't be the first time, won't be the last time. But we know that it's legitimate. And we know that God is righteous. And, it's, and, and, and he's not random in his, um, in his displeasure. And he's, not, he's, not, uh, he's not random in what he desires. And when his, when his law is broken... Uh, and there is unbelief and people don't trust him at his word, uh, that, is, that is every right for God to be righteous in his anger. Sometimes he brings correction. Uh, sometimes he brings uh, restraint. You know, uh, he's preserving people uh, in his anger. But sometimes he does, ultimately, those who are not part of his family, he cast out into uh, to condemnation for their disobedience, for their unbelief. Sometimes it's correction, sometimes it's condemnation. David thinks it's going to be a good idea for, again, some reason, we're not exactly sure, uh, that he thinks it's a good idea to take a census of all of Israel and Judah, the two parts from, like I said, when we refer to Dan to Beersheba, that's as far north of Israel and as far south in the Promised Land. And we're going to explore what might be some of the explanations as to why or the motivations that David has in this eventually. But suffice to say that of all people, uh, even corrupt commander Joab, who we've, we've, we've followed his life uh, and his willingness to disobey, uh, but he, even he's like, I don't think this is a good idea. This is a, this is a yellow flag. This is a, this is a red flag. Uh, this is not, not, not a red card, red, yellow and red flag. Not, don't go here. This is, this is not wise. This is not well for you, David. You don't want to count all of them. And he says he wants to count all the people, presumably the soldiers, the potential men. What's their potential for fighting for an army? But Joab is not, um, he's not happy about this idea. And I don't think it's because he's concerned about theological reasons as much as practical reasons. Let's look again at his objection in verse 3. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times, as many as you have, whatever it is, while, while, while the eyes of my Lord the king still sees it. But why? And this is an important question that I think is going to kind of mark uh, where we are in understanding the application of the text. Verse 3, the, the closest question is this. Why? Why, David? Does my Lord, the king, delight in these things? And we're going to come back to this. I think that Joab's objection is, let's not waste our resources. It ends up taking over nine months to do this census. And he's like, what, what is the point? Why are, we, why are we focusing on this? But there is something evil. There is something afoot here with David's plan that we cannot see. Let's move on. There's a prayer here beginning in verse 10. Uh, The numbers of the census come back to King David, and he, instead of being grateful, he is instantly and deeply convicted. His conscience is troubled. And uh, and let's, let's just look at it again. David's heart, verse 10, was struck after the people had been numbered, and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly. Notice that unlike last time he sinned greatly, which was back in, in chapter 11 with Bathsheba, um, it takes the prophet Nathan to persuade and to inform and alert him to that. And he does. He does repent. And we're grateful. But at this point, even to hear the numbers, he, he's pierced. He is, he is troubled and he is convicted. He repents. Why? What's the big deal? What did David do that was wrong in counting the people? 
In fact, why, why is it so wrong that God is actually going to punish other people as well? Well, there isn't anything inherently wrong with the census, with counting. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible devoted to it, right? What's it called? Numbers, that's right. Thank you, I'm glad you're paying attention. There's nothing wrong with counting. In fact, there's multiple occasions where God tells and instructs Moses, the prophet, to go and count the people. You would even count it and, and, and view it as a strategy, as a leader. And Jesus says that as well in the, in the Gospels. He says, you know, who would go to, who would, in Luke 14, it's a natural strategy. Who would go to war without counting? And what is the problem? It's not the sentence in and of itself. It's David's motivation behind it. And we're not exactly told, we are told that it was a sin and it was not God's will, but we're not exactly told what that motivation would be or what explicitly uh, is, is in view that is a sin. But we have some indicators. These, these might be some hints as to why it is that it's wrong that David would have counted this. The first one is David's pride. It would be tempting, as is the case in other eras, but certainly in the ancient Near East, the size of your army and the vastness of that in the ancient Near Eastern world was an occasion for a king to brag and to boast. Even if he doesn't intend to go to war, it's just, it's, you know, it's emblematic of his status and his, his, his prominence as a king. It would have been tempting uh, for David. We know what that's like, right? We, we count things too. It's not hard for us to imagine. It's like somebody today counts how much money they have or what school they got into or how they did on their standardized test or what kind of house they live in or what kind of circles did you run in or who was invited to your parties. David is looking for validation of his position and his status potentially in having this army counted. Second, a king's army would have been its security. No surprise, it's, it's, it's guaranteed that if you have a strong army, there's, it's almost guaranteed that you will be safe against an attack. But, but it's also a sign, because they, they're not at war, that there's an aggression that perhaps David is envisioning. Why would you count them? Why would you, why would you consider strategizing unless you're thinking of further and more conquest? You want to know what you can afford to go and conquer. But I definitely think intermingled with pride would have and could have been David's unbelief. David's unbelief. Because in the past, there are clear and obvious instances where David or the people of God in their army were completely and altogether outnumbered. But God gave them victory because God called them and God was supernaturally with them. It didn't matter what the number was. But at this point, God's not calling them. So he's certainly not asking for them to be counted. He's asking David, I'm not asking you, David, to trust your military power. I'm asking you, as always, David, to trust me. But, 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 but look at this vast number, my mighty men. Even as the previous chapter closes out, we see their strength, their cleverness, their might. Oh, this is wonderful. David, don't go there. This is a senseless census. And then God sends a prophet named uh, Gad. Maybe he was from Chicago and talked about Gad. Okay, some of you got that. Gad is 
Gad is a messenger, a prophet, has presumably replaced Nathan, who was the seer and the prophet who often accompanied King David, trusted as he was. Gad comes with a message. There's a unique message here of the punishment that we find out. We find out what that punishment is in verse 15. The unique message from him is to choose between three punishments. So now I moved on to my third uh, movement here in verse 15. The punishment. Yes, he's given options. The three are these. You can have three years of a famine. You can have uh, three months, so three years, three months of being chased by your, your foes, your enemies, or three days of plagues. So that, that this is one of those unique times that God says, you can choose. And, and it, it, it actually shows part of David's character and his assumptions. Naturally, you would say David was, was no fool. He just opted for the, the lesser of the three, which is three days, not three months or years. But that wouldn't be accurate. The reason that David chooses this particular option, well, or to leaves it to God to choose the option, is because he trusts in God's mercy. Let's read again the text so that, so that we're accurate into where David's heart is. Then David said to God, verse 14, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hands of man. That's a good example for us. I'll just say this. I I don't know what calamity has been in your life or what might be around the corner or down the road on a far distant horizon. But you might want to have your theology real tight and straight and strong before you get there. And David has it because he knows that God, even in calamity and sorrow and suffering and trial and testing, is full of mercy. I would rather go with God and trust his mercy. 70,000 soldiers, these men die as casualties. And then God shows his mercy, okay, in verse 16, the very least from where we're standing, it seems as such, because he changes course. He, allows the, he, he, he doesn't allow for the pestilence, the plague to reach and to destroy the, the city of Jerusalem. David cries for that mercy, even amidst the punishment. Please, what does he say in verse 17? Please, d- d- these people, these sheep, they are innocent. Let me and my house suffer, not them. He's almost as if he's saying, David, let me be the substitute not them, Lord, but me in my house. Then very, then very, very scary prospect comes uh, to David because in verse 18, he has to go and face uh, what is the angel of death at the threshing floor here. And this is where we see our last movement, which is the pardon. Verse 18, and Gad came that day to David and said to him, go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And even more specifically, the instructions are, so David does that. He, he follows Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And, and then he goes in and he offers the money for it. Now, the threshing floor, by the way, is just a large open area, flat uh, or smooth surface where they could use uh, it for winnowing to crush and to, to separate the grain uh, and the wheat. And it might have involved, you know, livestock and other things moving, uh, moving parts in that area. Uh, Aruna is a Jebusite, which is a small clan that was left over from the, the Canaanites that were preserved in the city of Jerusalem. 
And it, this position, the position of the threshing floor is uh, this particular uh, you know, location is actually Mount Moriah. And, and the same mount where, as many scholars say, Abraham was the one at the time that he bound Isaac as a sacrifice, which ends up being the very temple mount and the center for the worship of God's people, Israel, for many years to come. And even in David's disobedience and even all that's transpiring and, and all the parts that are moving, God is accomplishing and aligning his purposes for the future of God's people, Israel. Aruna is a Jebusite, like I said, that remained in the capital city. But he understands that something is sacred here. And he offers, look, he sees the king coming, pays homage, right? Uh, and, and, uh, and, and he offers to give up the land free of no charge. Look at verse 22. And then Aruna said to David, let my lord, the king, just take it and offer up what seems good to him. In fact, hear the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the auction for wood to burn up, to, to make an offering, to worship your God. Here, this makes sense to me. David, though, is insistent. And David says, no, I, I don't, I don't, I, I, I neither want it nor need it for free. And this is what he resolves. Let's look again at the text, verse 24. But the king said to Runa, no, no, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. <laughs> kind of defeats the purpose. It's not a sacrifice if it didn't belong to me or I purchased it. So the oxen are for the 50, he gave him the oxen uh, for 50 shekels of silver. And verse 25, David, excuse me, David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. In other words, God's holy and righteous anger is satisfied and it's lifted. And, and, and you know, at this particular uh, juncture, uh, you know, it's, it's halted. And that's because there are atoning sacrifices. Why is there so much blood? Well, here it's not as much, but in other places it is. And that's because we're all building up to it. It's costly. That's because blood guilt has to be purchased with the same thing, with blood. There's, there's blood involved because there must be a cost and a price paid that is involving life. There must be one life for another. We have disobeyed and broken God's law. The people of God then, the people of God now. Well, why don't we offer sacrifices? I still don't understand why, uh, you know, some churches call this an altar. It's not an altar. We're not, we're not sacrificing or re-sacrificing anything. We're celebrating the once and for all final sacrifices, f sacrifice, which is the Lamb of God. He, Christ, final, paid, covered, nothing. Everything that we've done, everything that we will do, all of it will not, none of it will be hidden. All of it will be laid bare on the judgment day. And we will either pay for our sins or someone else will. And that someone else is the Lamb of God. The Lamb. The Lamb is what all of that is just a, pre a precursor, a building, an anticipation, shadows, images, pictures. It's all building, culminating in a great and final sacrifice. Well, let's just look back at some of the troubling aspects. Remember what I said? Four movements. Two questions. The first question is this, and that's really related to kind of the philosophical troubling aspects of this text, if you picked them up. And the second question is one that relates to us personally and our application. All right, so here's the, here's the conundrum. Here's the, here's the problem. If you were looking uh, carefully, perhaps you saw it. And that is this. 
Who caused this census and the, the, the problems? What was, the, what was all of this about? Who caused this? Let's go back and look again at verse 1. It's the anger of the Lord that was kindled against David, excuse me, kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, wait, 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 wait. So you're saying that God caused David to go and count and make a census, and then God got angry for that and punished him. Oh, that's not, that's not even the whole of the problem. The real problem begins when you go flip over to the parallel account of this, which is recorded in 1 Chronicles 21, because it says there, Satan rose up, rose up against Israel, and Satan incited David to take a census of Israel. Clearly, the Bible is uh, got some, some contradictions, apparent contradictions. And this one's pretty bad because it attributed it, it attributed something to God and then to be so diametrically opposed and then later attributed to Satan. Who's, who's behind this? What's going on? In many ways, the best way to help kind of bring this into focus, it's, it's like what it's, it's somewhat akin to the righteous man that we know to be Job. Late, uh, elsewhere in, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, who was a righteous man who was tempted by Satan to abandon the faith. And for even the testing, right, and the trials of Job, he must have permission from who? Job? No, Job was fine. Not, <laughs> Job was fine without the testing, or so he thought. And God said, no, I, you need my permission. And the Lord enabled and freed Satan to bring this calamity on him. Ultimately, this is one of the mysteries of God's sovereignty, and yet simultaneously human responsibility. God's sovereignty, the Bible teaches that uh, God allows us to fall prey at times to our own evil desires, or even the temptations of Satan. But God is, is, we're told in James, is not the one who is tempting us or causing us to do that. It's actually our own desires inside. It was as if Satan was whispering, who's responsible, David, God, or Satan? The answer is yes. David is there with his own desires, and perhaps it was Satan, the great father of lies as he is, who was whispering in Satan's ear, into David's ears, you're the man. Look at you. Look at all that you've accomplished. Delight in these things. Go, go count all of this up and relish and delight in what you could do. Not that you have to, but hey, just enjoy this. Take a census, David. But according to David himself, David doesn't blame God or Satan, does he? Interestingly enough, the devil didn't make me do it. What does David say? Well, look at verse 10. David says, I'm the one who has sinned grievously. I'm the one who did this. He knows that, he knows that if it had been his idea all along, he would have taken credit for it if it had turned out well. You know what I mean? What came first? Satan tempted David in his desires, and God tested David in his desires. That's how it works sometimes. In the circumstances of our own life, we say, oh, but I have free will. But yeah, but the king 
is the one. The sovereign Lord is the one. We think of a river. We think of a rock bed. We think of of formations and the flow of that. You could be swimming in that stream and you are free. But we also know that the flow of that is in the, the hands of the living sovereign God. We have our desires. Sometimes God turns us over those. Sometimes we don't desire to swim against the current or in the healthy places of that current. And God says, fine. If this is what you want, then you will have to suffer the consequences of that. But even that wrath is just wrapped in mercy. Still yet is the case with God. We know this is true. The weight of struggles at life, sometimes they tempt us. we, We ourselves are tempted to want and hunger and crave for control or security in something or someone other than God. And that's, that's part of Satan's voice to us as well, who tempts us. Ultimately, it's God allows it, but we have to act of our own. Why is David being punished? And then why, furthermore, are so many others being punished? Because he and they were disobedient. They and he were delighting in something and someone other than God as their king, the Lord Yahweh. And yes, we wouldn't doubt or we wouldn't deny that there is a mystery here. But the way that we grapple with mystery, we don't understand the Bible except where we need to most. The Bible is puzzling. But the Bible understands you and me better than we understand the Bible. And when you have a problem with God, and we do, there's no higher court. There's no place to appeal. So that would be deeply troubling if we thought that God was random and not almighty and not sovereign. And even more so if we didn't and find ourselves utterly convinced, as the psalmist so clearly says in Psalm 145, that God is both good And righteous. We'll always benefit if we submit to God's word and we say, one thing I know, and that is God is God and I am not. And God is good and I am not. That might be something to rehearse. That might be something to revisit this week, this day. God is God and he is good. I am not. Psalm 145, verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. God is righteous in all of his ways and kind in all of his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him and all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Plain and simple. Why was it wrong for David to do the census? Because God said, don't. It's not, it was not God's will. That's enough. Trust him. Sometimes God says, I mean, I, I, you know, Jenny, well, praise God for her boldness, stood up here and said, before she was a Christian, she had no problem with the Ten Commandments, except the ones that weren't convenient. And she didn't agree with that week. Hello? D- description of all of us. We don't want God to be God. We don't want God to be in control. We want to be in control. We want to delight in things other than God. That's my next question, which is the personal question, which is what drives us into application. And it goes back to verse three in our text when Joab of all people says, what are you delighting in? 
What is the king doing with this count? This census? The root problem is in the heart of David here. And frankly with the people. And it goes back to that inquiry of Joab in verse 3. Why does the king delight in these things? What do you delight in? I, I said it last week too in a different form. Don't ask yourself the question only. Ask people who know you really well. Because what you say and how you describe, if you want to know someone's priorities, if you want to know what's really invaluable, sacred and important to them, don't bother asking them. Ask people who know their schedule and how they spend their money. Their time, their resources. What do you delight in? What makes your heart leap and sink in a way that guides you into a place of, of, of security and identity and happiness? What is it in your life that you delight in that provides part of your identity or your security or your happiness? What is the census of the, the army that you have that forms that identity, security, and happiness? Is it the amount of money in your bank account or your retirement accounts? It can be the same sin as David's because you're delighting in that more than you do God. What do you delight in? What do you, what makes your, what do you think about? What makes your heart soar just, just a little? Is it how you look? Is it, is it how you dress? Is it how much money you made this past year? Is it some award or some accolade? That, that's where you go. You, you, you just cherish and rehearse that over and over again. An, an athletic accomplishment. Your abilities. How many boys pay attention to you? How many friends you have? Beware, here's the warning, beware of anything. I'm speaking to myself as I say it to you. Beware of anything or anyone that takes the focus of your identity, your security, and happiness. It takes it off of God because it is displeasing. It's wicked in the sight of God. It could be even something good, right? It could be something that you would say, oh, but don't criticize me, this is noble. This is a good thing. It could be things like, it could be even things like ministry. There was a time that Jesus sent out his disciples early on in a, in a, a mission trip, if you will. They, come, they go out, they come back. You can read it in the Gospel of Luke. And they had power over the demons. And Jesus, understanding them, warned them. He said explicitly to them, do not delight. He says, do not rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written down in heaven in the Lamb's book of life. Rejoice. In other words, you know, all the times that you can think of, look at all that I've done for God. Look at the family or look at the, the harvest that I've raised or the things that I've accomplished. And then that, that for God. And God says, no, no, not at all. You need to delight and I need to delight in the fact that I know God and God knows me and God loves me. Is it enough or is it only God is good if I have what I want, when I want it, how I want it? I want control. 
God says, no, trust me, I love you. What are you counting on to bring your security, your identity, your hope, your joy? It's kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? That, that, that this book, this account, not just of David's life. I said it last week. You know, it's interesting. It doesn't even mention how David dies. 70,000 people die because of David's poor choice and sin and selfishness. Why does it not even mention? What kind of biography just completely forgets the, you know, the main character, so to speak? It doesn't even tell us how David dies. It's not about David. It's almost as if the narrator would have a start and end kind of in, <laughs> in a similar place. Remember, remember how it began in Judges? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes and, 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 and there was no king because they didn't want God as their king. And then David doesn't want to trust in God for his identity and security, hope and happiness. And they're suffering. This is the king you wanted? And this is the best that God has to offer. Old Testament scholar John Salehammer points out that First and Second Samuel in some ways goes like a giant circle. It opens with Hannah in the, in the midst of, of a temple, in the temple crying out for justice. But Second Samuel ends with David in a new temple, crying out for salvation. But both of them expressed with songs. Remember how we said that last week? First Samuel opened with Israel wanting a king to replace God as their identity, security, and happiness. It ends with David looking to his army to replace God. David has been a great king. David's not been the king that they were looking for, though. He started out so well. We know that. Remember, David was virtuous, Faithful, bold. He always honored the Lord's anointed. David was an honest man, even honest about his flaws and sins. He was courageous, at times very patient, but at times he was foolish. We know well, hasty, filled with pride, unbelief, and lust. What and who is going to meet us? Well, I already told you it's coming next week. Matthew, Matthew 1 verse 1. It's Jesus, the greater promised son, the true Messiah descended from David. I love that David says in verse 21, hey, listen, I don't want the threshing floor uh, for, for no price. I, well, I'll freely pay. He even wishes back in verse 17, I said this as well, that he, he, he was willing to be a substitute, not, not them, Lord, but, but, but me in their place. But now we contrast that in the fuller picture of the testimony of Scripture with the greater King, our King Jesus, who says, look, I'm going to offer myself. I, I don't want something that costs nothing. It costs him everything. Contemplate that. Our ultimate curse because of of our sin is lifted because of his obedience. Jesus is the final lamb who was wounded for our sin and whose blood covers us 
if we receive it, if you receive it today, today could be the day of salvation for you. So that God can hold back his hand of judgment, just like he did towards Jerusalem. Peter himself shares this in the New Testament. Jesus bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, he says of the great exchange in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, our great king, perfect king, unlike David, God made him who knew no sin to become sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thanks be to God. This is a king that we need by faith, and he is ours. Would you pray with me? Lord, it was because of your prompting and your counsel and your conviction that David found his posture humbled. Would you grant us the same posture that we might treasure the great and final king, the returning king, the living king, Christ, more and more, who came to set us free, to give us victory, not, not, not just in part, but in full, ultimately. Lord, would you guide us into wisdom and to living in a way that we're dying unto sin and living unto the hope of Jesus. I pray that for every person, man, woman, child here. Lord, thank you for the gift, the gift of your word. Thank you, God, for the gift of life that you've given to, to many in our church. And we do pray for moms in our church who are expecting. Lord, we think of the world, places, and, and people who are struggling with deep grief, sorrow because of war and violence. Lord, as, as we think about people who are burdened with sickness that lingers, with loneliness, with distress, other things like addiction and family members impacted, Lord, by it. I pray that you'd meet people in their struggles, in their grief, especially around the holidays. And even today and in the weeks ahead as people travel, Lord, would you guide them and guard them with your angels? Lord, we pray today. We pray today for more churches to faithfully Preach the gospel. And I do pray today for Pembroke Assembly of God and for First Baptist Duxbury. Would you keep their congregations and their leadership together, unified, encourage them, Lord, on mission. I pray you'd bring repentance and renewal, even revival to our community. Help us to remember that it was you who is, and you finally, ultimately, is our governor and our king. And would you remind us where our final citizenship is resides in Jesus name and for his sake even together now saying as Jesus taught his disciples our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name kingdom come thy will be done